This week on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I mean, the simplest explanation in politics is usually the right one. Incumbents are not losing, especially well-funded incumbents, and he was a well-funded incumbent. I mean, that's the simplest explanation. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And this is Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I am a roundtable host, Joe Arnold. Jared Crawford is back. Kevin Grout is here. And a mixed verdict, a split decision in Kentucky with um, most of the statewide offices going Republican, Scott Jennings. But, the, of course, the, the top one, Andy Bashir winning re-election, the power of incumbency strikes again. Yeah, uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, we've talked about it on the show, but incumbents are just not losing that many elections in America right now. I mean, in the last... Four years, there's only been two incumbent governors in America that lost. One was Matt Bevan, of course, in 19, and the other was uh, Sisolak in Nevada in 2022. But uh, other than that, incumbents are being reelected, especially well-funded incumbents. And certainly Andy Bashir, uh, you have to give credit where credit is due. They raised a ton of money, and they ran a disciplined campaign with that money, uh, and they, uh, they never relented uh, in their – attack vectors against uh, Daniel Cameron. I think um, just looking at the campaign finance stuff, uh, you know, I, I know there's some reports coming out soon, but seems like Bashir got close to 20 million in his campaign. Cameron did around 5 million. Of course, Cameron spent a chunk of that in the primary uh, and Bashir did not. But then when you throw in all the outside groups of which there was a lot of spending, I, I really think Kevin, the Bashir folks are going to have, outspent Cameron when all is said and done by $20 million or more. And that is not an insignificant amount. And if you had a television on in the state of Kentucky, or you were watching streaming television, or you had your laptop open, or you looked at a phone for the last several months, uh, you certainly could feel the the weight of the Bashir advertising advantage. That's exactly right. He, he was everywhere. And, you know, any, you know, moderately engaged voter you, you talk to, Oh, yeah, the governor, he seems like he's doing a good job. He's, you know, got a lot of things he's talked about on TV. He's always very disciplined on message. The number of times you heard about the battery plants, you know, you could not count the number of times he brought those up. He was he was always bringing them bringing them home. And it, it I think you can't dispute the, or dismiss the fact that he spent years after the pandemic just running around the state, handing out big foam checks with big amounts of money on it. Every local constituency you can imagine got one of those big checks pretty much straight from the governor with his name on it. And, um, you know, if in a local race where lo- people care about local issues, I think that matters. Yeah, I think I think governors, pandemic governors, governors who you know wind up in non-ideological arenas handling a crisis. And look, Bashir had COVID, he had the tornadoes, he had the floods. But but these COVID governors have all proven pretty politically resilient. Obviously, uh, the Republicans made a lot of hay about the Bashir shutdowns, particularly of the schools. Uh, but that was counteracted by, you know, his being on television. Joe, you remember, and Jared, I mean, he was on TV every day for over a year. And and in offices like this, you just you don't often get that kind of exposure or daily uh, intrusion is not the right word, but, you know, the, the sort of daily dose of that kind of a politician, the way Kentuckians did for, for that period of time. And it, it really did 
um, you know, he really did put him in people's living rooms every day. And, uh, and, and you could see it in the polling. I mean, he, you know, he always had a positive job approval and I do think it came down some, you know, obviously the nature of a campaign is to point out people's flaws. And I do think it came down some, but by and large, uh, I was talking to a, uh, an analyst about the race today. And he said, you know, I, I just think voters never really concluded that Bashir had committed a firing offense. And, uh, and I think, you know, obviously we're Republicans and <laughs> I'm a Republican anyway. And I, you know, I think he's done things I, I don't agree with, but there is a difference between doing things people don't agree with and a firing offense. You know, what is it a scandal? Is it a total mismanagement of funds? It is, is it a, you know, a firing offense. And, and he didn't have that. Uh, and so he, he turned out to be, I mean, I, I said at the beginning of the year to you guys, I thought he would be difficult to beat. I didn't think he'd be a pushover. And, and that certainly proved to be the case. I do want to say a word about our friend, Daniel Cameron, uh, who obviously uh, we're all very close to, and we know well, and, and I uh, 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 just wanted to, to say Daniel is a good man and, He's a good husband and he's he's a good father and he's going to be a good father again in the spring. And he's only going to be he, I mean, he turns 38 in a couple of weeks and he's got a long future ahead of him in politics. I think if he wants it and um, um, this one didn't work out, but I think he knew when he got into the race, he was he was taking a really big gamble uh, in, a, in a race that had really low odds. And, um, you know, I think he did some things in this campaign that that are to be commended. I mean, I think his education plan. And, and highlighting learning losses to be commended. I think, you know, that, that issue alone could define the next generation, you know, for Kentucky about whether we get that right. So just want to say uh, uh, to our friend Daniel, uh, we're proud of you, and uh, you'll be back someday, and we look forward to see what you do next. Yeah, I want to talk about some of those ideas he had, because I think he really did run an ideas campaign. Bashir tried to say all he was talking about was Washington, but you mentioned the Cameron Ketchup plan. He put out this great public safety plan that you know violent crime is a is a real issue and he he proposed a lot of issues to address that um his economic plan i mean his his was an ideas based campaign um i don't think those ideas will go away hopefully they can continue to be pushed by the republican-led legislature uh that can override any of governor Bashir's vetoes but uh do do want to commend him for that for you know really caring about the issues and you know putting forward some some big ideas yeah, I started I started thinking about today where I was or, or sort of what we were thinking four years ago, the day after the 2019 election. And I remember everybody sort of thinking like, oh, you know, Bashir is this kind of anomaly. And, you know, it, it, we could never imagine that we would have covid and then the tornadoes and that the flooding and he would be this constant presence on our TVs and in communities because of, of these tragedies. Um, and, you know, all of that combined. Daniel still sort of looked at that and said, you know what, I'm going to bet on myself. Um, you know, I'm going to take on, you know, at the time, I think, you know, back in the Republican primary times, uh, Bashir was the most popular Democrat governor in the country, you know? And so Daniel really bet on himself because I think, and he talked about this last night, this race was about our future, that these big, bold ideas that you just mentioned, Kevin, are not worth sitting on the sidelines for, right? Like he couldn't, he couldn't sit aside and say, yeah, we'll just, you know, we'll let somebody else do this or we'll let this guy get another four years. The the issues were too big. What had happened over those, those four years were, were too important to sit on the sidelines. Uh, and, you know, despite the, 
you know, sense that this is a increasingly Republican state and it's ruby red and, and you know, uh, these federal elections and the rest of the ticket obviously did well, that he came in in, in some ways as an underdog. And so I, I do commend him for, for really betting on himself, running on big ideas, big, bold ideas for these big issues. And I mean, you know, Daniel joked about this on the, on the campaign trail about Bashir needing to be enrolled in the Cameron Ketchup plan. But I really do hope that now that this is all over, that Bashir takes these sorts of things seriously, because uh, regardless of if we disagree on, on policy, there are some very serious issues still facing the state. And uh, hopefully he can kind of hit the reset button now and, and you know, dive into to these problems. Well, the, the, the reality in Frankfurt is, though, that. <laughs> The, the Republicans in the legislature can do anything they want to do. I mean, that that's the thing about Kentucky governor. It's been rendered sort of uh, useless is not the right word, but, but close because the legislature can do anything they want to do with a simple majority and override your vetoes and, and disregard everything you say. And they've done that to Bashir a lot. Um, so if they choose to move forward on policy matters next year, you know, as you say, Jared, they can take some of these conservative ideas and and put them into law. I I bet I would bet dollars to donuts, a lot of the Cameron public safety plan becomes law. Uh, and I would also encourage the legislature to really take a look at the at the Cameron catch-up plan and just the the idea of of something to help the kids catch up from learning loss. I mean, it's just too big of a problem to ignore. I don't think we're ever going to get anything out of Bashir on it uh, because he just. Uh, I, I don't believe he really cares about it, uh, but the, the legislature is still there to to run with these ideas, and and they need to. I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, you know, I would be interested in your your all's opinion. That you know, the race for some time was obviously, you know, some discussion of local issues. In October, the, the Republicans really nationalized it. You know, Cameron leaned in heavily to his endorsement from Trump. Uh, he tied Bashir to Biden. You know, I do think in late September, early October. The, the the truth is Cameron was down significantly. And I do think nationalizing the race closed it up. I think Republicans did come home to Cameron to some degree. And so instead of being a, you know, down 10, you go to down two or you're, even some nights you're tied. But obviously there were limits to Trump. You know, there were limits. Look at the map. You know, there were limits to what Trump can do. He can certainly deliver a primary, but there were limits. And it's it's obvious to me, last November and now this November, that there is a cohort of voters who are extremely unhappy with Joe Biden. They are very worried or disdainful of the direction of the country under his policy leadership, and they intend to keep voting Democrat until Trump is gone. I mean, it it happened in the midterms in November of 22. It happened last night in Kentucky. Some are Republicans, some are independents, some may be Democrats, but there's obviously a cohort of voters that don't really like Biden, but will cast a vote for a Democrat, uh, I think, to some degree over Trump. And maybe some of it was over abortion and the debate we had over the uh, the abortion limits, Joe. I, I think the I think both of those points are exactly spot on. I was going to bring up. I thought that the most effective uh, campaign strategy by the Bashir folks was was abortion. I think that they, if you look at some of the suburbs and you look at some of the, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see any kind of split yet on on women vote uh, in, in Kentucky, but I think that the, the, I think her name is Hadley, 
the uh, young lady from Owensboro. I thought that was an extremely effective commercial. And when I first saw it, I was like, that, that's, it, it really resonated and uh, could only imagine what kind of effect it would have. And frankly, when you already have the power of incumbency and the power of all the other things both of you, all three of you have mentioned up to this point, you know, um, that, that, that to me, especially if you look back at the, the, the midterms last year in the wake of Dobbs, and you look at the, you know, the whole Trump effect or the, his, the, the limits, as you pointed out, Scott, of his overall influence, that this to me is, is uh, as far as a reckoning moment is concerned, I think every candidate has to get their, get their message straight and understand where are the American people and where is Kentucky on this issue? Because it's, uh, it needs to be worked out, Kevin. And I, it's not just Kentucky. I mean, the same time as, uh, we were having our election up in Ohio. They were having a constitutional amendment uh, on abortion, and they added a constitutional right to abortion to their state constitution. Uh, so clearly Republicans are not winning races on the abortion issue right now, and I think Republicans need to find the vocabulary to reach those voters who had voted pro-life so long before Dobbs um, shook up shook up everything. Um, so yeah, you're right, Joe. I think it was a big issue here in in Kentucky. Bashir took a big bet on it, and uh, it, it, it's not just us. It's it's around the country. I, I think the the conversation around abortion, though, I, I think there are a lot of voters who consider themselves to be, to some degree, either a small degree or a large degree, pro life, but who do still want some kind of access in emergency situations, such as. Rape and incest. That was really the, the topic of the Hadley ad that you mentioned, Joe. Kentucky's law does not have that. And I, I do get the feeling, and certainly I've seen some polling on it, that the exceptions are just that that's mainstream political thought right now. And to be against the exceptions or to not have it really does put you outside of the center of public opinion. I mean, look, I think Bashir's position on abortion is extreme. I think he wants no limits. I agree with everything Cameron said about it. But Bashir was the only person advertising on it. Cameron did not advertise on it and didn't really respond to the attacks. And and so to the average voter, what they saw was um, somebody who wanted exceptions and somebody who didn't. There was really no litigation, at least in advertising, of limits or other contours of the law. It was simply around the issue of exceptions. And I'm just telling you, I've, I've seen a lot of polling on it. There's, there's a whole bunch of people out there who consider themselves to be strongly pro-life, but but think the exceptions are necessary public policy. And and I think, Kevin, to your point on the Ohio race and and other things we've seen in Kentucky and other states, it's apparent that there are some pro-life voters who are saying, well, look, I don't really, you know, I, I don't really feel my I don't feel like I'm extreme either way. I feel like I'm kind of in the middle. I want a reasonable limit and I want reasonable exceptions. But if we don't, you know, if we don't. Uh, I think they're worried about being sucked into extremism, truthfully. And uh, and 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 so they're willing to vote with the Democrats on this issue uh, because they're worried about being sucked into extremism on the other side. And so I, I agree with you, Kevin, that I think I don't know if it's vocabulary or just <clears throat> policy, you know, just kind of coming together as a party on policy and saying, you know, here's roughly what what we could be for. But, boy, there is there's just a lot of division inside the Republican Party about how to handle this. 
Yes, Scott, I, I think you nailed that when, you know, for however, you know, 50 plus years, Republicans kept saying, kick this back down to the states. And I think we all agreed that was the right thing to do. And then all of a sudden we had to go on the offensive and it was like we forgot what we had to say about this issue. And, uh, you know, it's if you had, again, told people that a statewide in a statewide, you know, governor's race, that the Democrats would be the ones messaging on abortion, you would have been like, what, wait, what? This is not, they don't have the popular position here, but they've been able to kind of figure out how to message this the right way. And we've seen ballot amendments in I think six states now, uh, you know, either rejected or approved in, in what would be considered the kind of pro-choice uh, way, rejected here in Kentucky, approved in states like Ohio and Vermont. Um, and, and so I, I think it was like, we kicked it down in the States and all of a sudden it was, you know, we, you know, the dog caught the car and didn't know what to do. Uh, and Democrats have, have had the right message. Um, and, you know, to your point about Bashir, Scott, voters aren't looking at the finance reports where he's receiving all this money from Planned Parenthood. They just see, you know, that really powerful ad that you talked about, Joe. Uh, and so it just is like, OK, I think I'm on that side here on this issue uh, and, you know, drives a lot of those suburban, you know, uh, college educated women to Democrats. I will also say the issue is is motivating, not just for voters. And by the way, I think I think. I think their strategy was twofold, and it, I think it worked. One is to motivate Democrats, obviously. That's how I mean, they really care about this issue. But the other was was to just kind of be a wet blanket on those kinds of voters you mentioned, Jared, you know, kind of the suburban, white-collar, you know, those people who really are not as much into Trump anymore. Maybe they didn't love Bevin, but, but they're just – they're not as conservative on abortion as – where the current Kentucky state law is and the Bashir people figured that out. And so I think, I think it was a, it was a dual strategy. It was a GOTV kind of a strategy, but it also served as a suppressant, I think. And you can look at some of the results and see that uh, in, in Jefferson County, Fayette County and, and like Oldham County, you know, was, was really close. But on top of that, it's also motivating for democratic donors. And I think one thing, if you look at all these races around the country, Democrats essentially have unlimited money. I mean, abortion motivates their people to donate. Bashir basically had unlimited money. Uh, even the uh, uh, one of the consultants in Mississippi told me, not the Republican there won, but I think the Democrat running against, he had unlimited money, basically outspent an incumbent governor. So Democrats are also using this issue to just turn on the money spigot and never turn it off. And uh, when you're running against incumbents uh, or in tough races, that that's a tough beat, Joe. Does this, um, what's this say about, and I, I want to get back to the, the down ballot, and I want to hear, by the way, Kevin, if you can queue up, uh, I, I, I do want to hear from Daniel Cameron with one of the more remarkable uh, concession speeches I've I've heard. But but to your point, uh, Scott, about what this says about trends and that kind of thing and some of the national stuff, are people looking at Kentucky in, in, in from a national perspective to say, here's a path to, to winning for a Democrat? No, I mean, look, I think I think most people see Bashir as still as an anomaly. We have two Republican senators, five out of six congressmen, the entire constitutional roster other than governor. Um, I mean, the simplest explanation in politics is usually the right one. Incumbents are not losing, especially well-funded incumbents, and he was a well-funded incumbent. I mean, that's the simplest explanation. Certainly, there were issues like abortion at play. And his, you know, operation during the weather events we had, but 
But at the end of the day, well-funded incumbents are doing well in a lot of states. So no, I no, I, I don't think Kentucky is being looked at as a well. As a state. Let me ask you this question though, too. I mean, you look at, I mean, and you mentioned, of course, every other constitutional officer in Kentucky uh, wins, not just wins, but wins handily. I mean, nothing was close. I think the closest may have been the Mark Metcalf race, and that I think he still won like by one hundred and fifty thousand votes at least. So I mean, so people obviously are willing to split their ticket, just to split yep. their vote, and and so what does that say? Well, obviously there were Republicans. Uh, and independents and some Democrats who voted for every Republican except for one. I mean, the same thing happened in the 19 race. Um, and so, I, I, you know, there's there's a cohort of voters here who are willing to split a ticket to vote Democrat here and Republican everywhere else. Of course, the governor's race gets the most attention. I will say the attorney general's race, Kevin, which we worked on, Got a lot of attention, I thought, especially late. The Democrat governor, uh, uh, Attorney General Association came in and spent, you know, a million bucks against Russell Coleman uh, on some pretty incendiary attack ads. And so that one did get some attention. But Russell, you know, crushed across the board. I think he lost three counties. And so and so, um, you know, I think the I think the some of these races that attracted no money, Joe, that's kind of the that is the generic ballot. You know, people don't know anything about it. So they default to their generic disposition. And you can see the generic ballot in Kentucky is heavily Republican. Uh, and so um, if you're Cameron uh, and the Republicans looking at this, obviously the thing to figure out would be what kind of a voter is it that is voting for Bashir and then voting for every other Republican? And and was it they just liked the job the incumbent was doing? Was it abortion? Was it, you know, what was, and, and, and did try to discern that? Because I, I mean, that is ultimately the, the biggest lesson that could be learned from all this. If you listen to Andy Bashir, it's, it's because he's not a Democrat, or at least he's not, that that's not important to him. It's that, that, that this is, that he's, he puts that all aside when he becomes governor. A lot of Republicans, of course, would take issue with that. Uh, Kevin, let's, let's hear from Daniel. Uh, this was uh, really, uh, first of all, just to point out that there are some people asking him, I think before all this, like, would he accept the outcome of the election? Uh, there's and there are some election deniers at play in Kentucky today talking about how it's not it's not possible for people to split their tickets the way that, that we just discussed a moment ago. But in Daniel's very graceful concession speech uh, on, on Tuesday night, he's certainly accepted it and then wished his his, his opponent well. Promise the governor I'd be brief. So I'll uh, be brief tonight and say thank you all. Thank you so much for your willingness and commit to this campaign and this effort, an effort that was ultimately about our kids and our grandkids. As I called the governor uh, to congratulate him, I know from his perspective and from all of our perspectives that we all want the same thing for our future generations. We want a better commonwealth, one in which it can ultimately be a shining city on a hill a model and example for the rest of the nation to follow. And so as I did with Governor Bashir, I want all of us to think about what these next few decades will look like. And I ask that you pray for Governor Bashir and his team and for all of our Commonwealth. Because at the end of the day, win, lose, or draw, what ultimately matters is that we know that Christ is on the throne. 
Daniel Cameron on Tuesday night. Scott, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about um, Andy Bashir, but uh, I what struck me was the contrast with, and I don't know if it's usually the opposite because you would think the guy who was who was beat up in the ads and who lost the race would maybe be more aggrieved. But Daniel pretty much said, you know, let's look toward the future and and let's pray for the governor. And Governor Bashir was frankly uh, talking about the politics of division and talked about Sarah Huckabee Sanders versus Jack Harlow and talked about how they defeated anger. And, and it, it almost sounded like he couldn't separate himself from the campaign. And it seems to me that if you win, that's when you consolidate. That's when you try to reach out to the other side I don't mean, like I said, to relegate everything here, but I did you have any any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think Andy Bashir has always talked a good game on this, and but never practices it. And and I thought Daniel was incredibly gracious. I think, look, I think the governor, it does not, he has never been one that likes being challenged, and, and Cameron challenged him. I will say this, I don't think Daniel Cameron's campaign ever actually ran an attack ad. But I, I promise you, Andy Bashir's campaign spent more money on attack ads against Daniel Cameron than Daniel Cameron spent in total. I mean, the most incendiary negative attacks in this campaign uh, were coming right out of the Bashir camp. And so, you know, he obviously feels like he shouldn't have to answer questions or be challenged on his record or whatever. And, you know, look, he won the election. He gets to say whatever he wants to say. But I think if you're waiting for him to be kind of a, big tent governor who wants to, you know, pull everybody together. You're not, you're not going to get that out of these folks. It was just an interesting contrast Tuesday, Jared. Yeah, Joe, you, you kind of mentioned it. So I'll just say it kind of bluntly. Two people that were not mentioned in uh, Andy Bashir's victory speech, Daniel Cameron and his Lieutenant Governor, Jacqueline Coleman, people who were Jack Harlow, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Rand Paul, Mitch McConnell. I mean, I'll let the the listeners sort of interpret what that might mean about the people he did and did not mention. But again, Daniel, very graceful in defeat. Bashir, maybe not so much. Um, But, uh, you know. Speaking of ungraceful, if I could, let's just talk about Donald Trump. Uh, It's truth social. And uh, he'll take every credit where he can. And as soon as what what is the old saying? I guess victory has a thousand fathers, you know, and 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 uh, defeat has zero. But he uh, he he just he just threw it all at McConnell, Scott. Well, of course, this weekend, this past weekend, he put out a true social saying, you know, Daniel Cameron's not really a McConnell guy. Yeah, <laughs> they just say that he is because he's from Kentucky. Then all of a sudden, it was well, he's Mitch McConnell. <laughs> he did the same thing in the midterms in twenty twenty two, and you know, Trump's operating principle is anything good that happens is. My doing anything bad that happens is someone else's fault, and you know we all know people like that <laughs> in, in our in our lives. Um, but the truth is, Daniel did lean into Trump. Mm-hmm. He obviously delivered. I, look, I think Trump delivered in the nomination. Yeah. You know, when he got the Trump endorsement to go back in time, it it really pretty much uh, aced out Kelly Craft, who who was kind of running as as Trump's ambassador. And when he went to Daniel, it really really put her in a bad spot, and so. You know, if you're Daniel, okay, it helped me here. But then, and then you get to October and you're way down. And so you want to nationalize the race. He leans into Trump and and Biden. It helps draw the race closer. But there are people who didn't like it. I mean, I personally heard from people who 
Like the idea of Daniel, love the idea of a Republican governor. Didn't love the idea of him essentially, you know, saying vote for me for one reason, because of Trump. They wanted to hear other things. Now, there were all I mean, I'm sure there were voters out there who, when they heard the Trump message rallied to Daniel. So, I, you know, this is not a, you know, hundred, you know, all or nothing kind of thing. But but he is a two edged sword. I think we found the limits of Trump. I mean, there's <laughs> look, he got 46 percent of the vote. In 2016, he got 46 percent of the vote in 2020. You know, his <laughs> the base voter of Trump has not really changed that much. But we are finding some Republicans gravitating away in 18, 19, 20, 22, now 23. And, you know, it look, look at Oldham County. I mean, that that is a place where you're going to find that sentiment. And Daniel barely won it. Republicans need to be winning that county by a lot more. And and by the way, the down tickets actually did. So yeah, uh, on that too, on the whole, I believe the the phrase Trump uses like the McConnell stench. Russell Coleman was also a, a McConnellite. So is Jonathan Shell. Like the idea that, that oh, that's Jared. The, the, Jared Russell Coleman worked for Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Mike Adams, yeah. McConnell yeah, scholar, yes, and, yeah. and worked worked with McConnell. Jonathan Shell, Mitch McConnell's campaign chairman, <laughs> literally went around the state for McConnell. Yeah, like, yeah. In 2020. It, it's it's uh, not. Yeah. It, it's no. That is absolutely. Yeah. It's a ridiculous deflection. And of course, you know, it's a one day thing. No one, you know, no one's going to care about it tomorrow. What after the debate tonight? But, but, uh, but it, it's just sort of how flippant. You know, he treats it, but whatever. But if you're saying that you know McConnell or uh, Trump can deliver you a primary, but maybe not a general, he's you know the leader of the pack for the Republican presidential nomination next year. He can clearly yeah. easily win that primary. Um, I mean, does that mean he's he's almost dead in the water uh, in, in the general? I mean, I know there are people who will vote for Trump and nobody else, uh, but, you know, um, Scott. You but wrote, I also know wrote, people who will vote for anybody else but Trump. Right, right. Uh, Scott, I mean, you wrote in the, the Courier-Journal today um, that Kentucky has been seen as a bellwether. What happens in the gubernatorial race here in Kentucky shows up in the White House next year. Um, should, should that's been true for 20. Attention? Yeah, that's been, you're exactly right. That's been true going back to 2003. I mean, I noted also in my column that uh, the least Trumpy candidate, in my opinion, on the ballot, Mike Adams, uh, won the most votes. I mean, this is Mike Adams who sort of stood up to the election deniers and wouldn't entertain the conspiracy theories and, and uh, called it out for what it was. And, he had a primary, which he easily dispatched, and then he got the most votes in the general. And so the, the least Trumpy guy we have, Mike Adams, got the most votes. And there may be a lesson in that. But in terms of the bellwether, Kevin, I do think there are things to be learned here. And, and one of them is we started learning it last November. We learned it again last night. Like I said, there's voters who don't like Biden, don't like Democratic policies, and fully intend to vote Democrat as long as Donald Trump is around. And, and we saw independent voters do it last year. I mean, these double haters, may they hate the idea of both Biden and Trump running, they're defaulting to Biden. And, uh, and so I think that's a trend that, that we're going to have to watch. And next, you know, when we're recording this pod this time next year, you know, we'll see, we'll see where those people landed. I will say Biden, I mean, he is in rough shape in the polling. I mean, goodness gracious, he's really bad. I mean, the, you know, it's the questions on mental acuity alone are, are terrible, but 
that that's you know Trump's terrible too. I mean, we have really two terrible choices. Well, the one thing that Joe Biden will not be able to do that Andy Bashir was capable of, and that was was to separate himself from Joe Biden. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> that's right. Although he might try. Oh, who we, am I? What am uh, I doing here? He might just that's forget right. who he is. Yeah. If that happens, you wakes, never know. Wakes up a new person one day. <laughs> we talked about, you mentioned Russell Coleman. Let's hear Russell Coleman from, uh, from election night. I stand here tonight at the end of an 18-month job interview filled with gratitude, humility, and more determination than ever. To all those listening in this room and around Kentucky, whether you supported me or not, I promise you this. We will protect your family. We will defend your rights. And we will back the blue. Probably. I, I, I did not know Russell Coleman before this cycle began and uh, have just been so impressed just by the forthrightness and sincerity uh, and just from a civil servant perspective I really, I can't think of having anyone I'd have more confidence in as far as attacking the job rather than running for office. I mean, he's, he's someone who, he had to go through the politics of it, Scott, for the sake of doing the job that he wants to do. Yeah. Well, he, you know, what talks about, uh, he talks about wanting to be a law enforcement agent, you know, really from the time he was in the second grade and, uh, his dream was to be in the FBI, which he achieved. And, and when you out when you're out campaigning with Russell or you see him out there and, and his affection for the law enforcement that he encounters on the campaign trail, I mean you really, Kevin, you were out with him a lot. I mean you you can really just you sort of get a feeling for just how that's his that's his family. I mean, that's his community. That's his I mean, he feels like he's he's one of them. He's not out there trying to um I don't know what I'm trying to say. You know, he he comes from them. He's not trying to go to them and 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 relate to them. He 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 is them. You know, I mean, he 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 really views himself as law enforcement first and politicians second. And of course, they love Russell. Oh, yeah. They gave him an early endorsement. FOP did, and it was a big part of his campaign. And that's how he views the office. I think Kevin is put bad guys in jail. That's that's what the job and, is. And then keep them there. Yeah, I think he's. <laughs> He, from the day he announced, we've been calling him the most qualified person to ever run for this office, and he's he's going to hit the ground running on day one. Uh, bad guys beware in Kentucky. Um, Russell Coleman's coming. He he is uh, Scott. You said we did a little work for him. I think you are the the architect behind uh, the great sound he had as the Western Lawman. Um, <laughs> we're, we're all going to be hearing the, the the Spurs coming up behind you uh, on. on I know. Day. We'll we'll save that for the reelect. The, the Spurs. <laughs> Russell's going to have to earn his spurs here in the go, first term. We'll, we'll put him in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll gush on, on Russell a little bit too. And um, one of the first people I actually met when I, when I moved to Kentucky, gracious, humble, sharp, welcoming. I mean, everything you could want in a politician and then the perfect candidate for the job uh, has had all the roles cares about the right issues, a, a person who I've seen care for victims more than anybody. I mean, from top to bottom, you know, in, in the public safety sphere is sharp, cares about the right things, um, truly is just fit for this role. And, you know, Joe, you opened this by saying he didn't probably the kind of guy who doesn't want to get dragged down into the mud to win, uh, but, ha, you know, uh, you know, did a little bit and, and came out the other side. Um, and, and to, to Russell's, you know, credit too. this is, look, he, he won handily, 
but he also worked his butt off. Uh, sometimes did. people yeah. don't see that on the down ballot guys or don't follow the fundraising numbers as much. Russell fundraised his butt off. I don't, Kevin, you might know how many miles they put on the, on the Ford. I mean, these, these, him and Jonathan shell too, probably went to 500 Lincoln day dinners in the last two years. Uh, and so these guys really work their butt off to, uh, to win by huge margins. So, I mean, just incredible kudos to them really putting the work and really deserve it. And, and Russell's going to have a bigger job now being the attorney general to the democratic governor. You know, he's going to have to keep yeah. the, Andy Bashir in check, which is a big job in itself. But I mean, I, I don't think you're going to look at it and see that he's doing it from a partisan perspective. He, he's going to follow the law and he's going to uh, make sure it's followed. Not only does he have to keep Andy Bashir in check, he's going to have to keep Joe Biden in check. I mean, that's that's one of the things Cameron, I think, over four years did great. You know, these federal overreach and standing up to that. I, I, I have to say, though, before we move on to Mike Adams, who I know we have a soundbite from our secretary of state. I still can't believe the Democrats ran a candidate for attorney general that does not have a Kentucky law license. I cannot believe it. I didn't believe it when I first heard about it. I didn't believe it when we looked it up. I didn't believe it when the article came. I, I just I can't believe it. How did that? How did that happen? <laughs> Scott, you, you were talking about when we're on, doing this podcast a year from now. Uh, let's look then. Like everybody make a mental note. We'll look then to see if she's got a Kentucky law license yet. And I, I doubt it. <laughs> Why get it now? I mean, you know. <laughs> well, you know, one of the one of the undiscovered or I'm sorry, unexplored things. Well, explored by me, but not in advertising <laughs> on that campaign was, you know, after after it was pointed out, she didn't have a law license. Her campaign started bragging that she took the test to get the license, which is some kind of an ethics test, and told the media she got a 98, which sounds great. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, we got a 98. We got a 98. Well, some some lawyer called me and said, you know, the test is, 100, is out of 150. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was like, what? We got a D minus <laughs> on the ethics that is test? Great. So that, 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 that sadly didn't make it into the – into the final products, but we'll always know here. Kevin and I will always have that one in our back pocket. Could you imagine <laughs> lying about an ethics exam? It's almost like beyond parody. I know. Oh, crazy. Let's go back to Garrett County for a moment, if we could, though, just to oh, say sure. congratulations to Jonathan Shell and Mark Metcalf, the uh, Ag Commissioner and State Treasurer elects. Both of yep. them coming from that area there, Lancaster in that area, and uh, both handily. 5941 for Jonathan. Wait, and uh, Wait, 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 wait. Yes. Lancaster. Oh, I'm Lancaster. sorry. Did I miss? Okay. I think you, I, I think you, you hit Arnold County. Lancaster. Did I, Lancaster. Did I anglicize it? <laughs> you did, actually. <laughs> right. now you apologize, anyway. Joe, and then you call Jonathan and you apologize. You besmirch right. people's good name. Well, I don't want to run a follow Jonathan. He's tough as shell. I mean, I'm telling you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 59 41, Jonathan uh, convincing victory. 57 43 for Mark Metcalf. I should point out that in the in the whole race, Allison Ball was the reigning champion as far as top vote getter from four years ago. She almost held on to that, that title. She had 782,736 votes on Tuesday. But Michael Adams and the Secretary of State's race has about 200 or 2,000 more, 784, 772. So Michael Adams, as I said before, as we hear from him now, Kevin, the top vote getter in the overall race. Past four years, I've shown you my heart. 
and I've shown you results. I thank Kentuckians across the political spectrum for your overwhelming trust in me. I will not let you down. Thank you, Kentucky. In, in Mike's speech, if you listen carefully, you know, he was up there talking about crime, mm-hmm. education, mm-hmm. not typically issues that you associate with the Office of Secretary of State. Obviously, he'll be term limited out in four years. And look, I, I have a lot of admiration for Mike. I think people know he and I were roommates in college and uh, he's a couple years older than me and, and was kind of my mentor And when I got to the University of Louisville. And uh, we worked together on many things over the years. And I I love Mike. I mean, I, I, I deeply love Mike like a brother and I'm very proud of him for what he's been able to accomplish and really what he's been able to stand up to and still be politically successful. I think he, I mean, I introduced him at the thing. I said, he's become the most consequential and successful secretary of state in the country. I think that's true. Um, he'll obviously have four more years to do this job, but I guys, I have to tell you, I think, I mean, you know, we're a long way away from, from the governor's race, but, um, you know, He's got to be mentioned in the tier one front runner category for for governor, I think. I mean, you know, there's a lot of names that'll be thrown around, but a successful two term constitutional office holder who's got a proven track record of uh, of doing uh, pretty well in 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 the blue counties of Jefferson and Fayette might look pretty might look pretty attractive to voters in four years. I can't imagine not. I mean, and beyond that, I mean, just just the, the fundamentals in the same way as, as you acknowledged from the very beginning, Scott, about Andy Bashir's um, advantage coming into this election as the incumbent, as a known quantity, as a fundraiser, the whole, whole thing. But there's nobody left after Bashir as far as the Democrats bench are concerned. I mean, if I'm a I Republican mean, candidate at all, I mean, it's just saying this, just prime it up. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, my assumption is Jacqueline Coleman will fancy herself a candidate for governor. I don't know Rocky how old Rocky Atkins was asked today, and he didn't say no. Yeah, of course. You know, amazing though. He's got the same position on abortion that Cameron has. He he, <laughs> he was the author of the state's trigger law, which no no one, of course, bothered to point out in the media. <laughs> but but uh, but the but the governor's top advisor and Cameron, I guess, had the same position on it. Uh, I mean, I, I assume he'll he'll go for it. I mean, on the Republican side, I mean, you could have any number of people take a look at it. Uh, a lot of people think Congressman Jamie Comer might. Come and look at again. He ran obviously once before. I mean, any of these constitutional officers could take a look at it. I mean, you know, this is the thing about coming up a really Republican state. Most things are going to have a primary, and there'll be a lot of serious people that take a look at the most serious races. That's one thing, Kevin, about Coleman's race that yeah. was so remarkable. He did such a good job of fundraising and collecting endorsements before the filing deadline that he never had a primary, which really was a remarkable thing. And it kept his war chest intact and allowed him to fight off the, the Democrat AG attacks in October. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Mike was Mike, Mike put a crush crushing victory on it. And I'm very proud of him. I am looking forward to uh, this coming year in the general assembly because uh, the governor pretty much says that he endorses the Republican, the Republican agenda. So yeah. it really should be kind of a kumbaya. Ah, well, it wasn't. Ah. It wasn't the last. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the last session. I mean, he's. He, I mean, they passed a bunch of bills that he signed, and he ran on it. And so, uh, we'll see what happens next. I, I saw Senator Thayer in the Senate talking about how there's no reason to work with Bashir. Well, 
That'll be new. <laughs> I mean, well, they, uh, the governor I mean, today they, they work with him on some things. Uh, the governor today at a press conference was asked uh, along this line, and he said, "Well, when my dad was reelected, the next day Republicans were all over him, saying, ah, we don't have to be enemies anymore, and we knew you were right all along.'" That that seems like a little happy talk that I don't I don't think will come to fruition. But uh, he he says that the Republicans are going to be eager to work with him now. On what? I mean, what what, what are their shared? Pri- I mean, what are their shared priorities? I mean, I mean, Bashir didn't really run on anything. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the he he did not run on a he did not have a like I'm he, he did not run on anything and much at all. And so I I don't know on what. I really do hope the Republicans use this session to really focus on policy and and uh, and good conservative policy that addresses real. Pr- Problems. I don't. I just don't really believe Bashir is going to do that. I'm sure he'll be eager to take credit for it. He did it in this campaign, yeah. but I think it's really going to be on the Republican. Cut the income tax? <laughs> oh, I, I may have heard something about that. <laughs> Forty million dollars times. I, I, w- I will say I do wonder. Uh, if they still continue to try to take um, power away from Bashir or some of his, you know, cabinet officials or, or some of the departments, because that is where some of these messes still really exist, right? The juvenile justice issues, um, the the foster care issues that for the eight months of the year that Bashir is that lone person in Frankfurt, uh, he's the one kind of controlling that or frankly kind of ignoring it. Uh, I do wonder if there's an emphasis on, you know, continuing to take those powers away from him or transfer them to, uh, you know, Russell's office or I don't know, maybe the ag commissioner will be running the the juvenile justice department or something. <laughs> it, it, I, again, it's, some of it seems silly, but they 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 have such he has such a disregard for running those cabinets. The general assembly is like, well, we got to give it to somebody who's going to do something. Uh, and so th- I, those eight months in which Bashir, you know, runs the state, uh, I do wonder what he's going to be able to do or if he's going to play ball. Uh, Cause there's some significant problems in, in those departments. So, uh, you know, maybe they say, Hey, well, we won't give the ag commissioner power of the juvenile justice system. You do something about it. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, and we'll give you teacher razors, right? That's the, that's the one thing I can think of that he's wanted. You're going to the teachers razors? Raises. <laughs> oh, raises. Okay. Raises. Against hairy teachers. I thought, I thought it would be a whole um, different story. They all need to shave. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. There'll be some interesting dynamics at play outside of pass bills. He vetoes. They pass them again. Right. That, that, that will happen. To you. I'm sorry. I, I want to talk to you before we wrap up here. I, I want to make sure we talk to some national politics. I know that we're, you're joining us from New York City just for transparency's sake. It's 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on uh, Wednesday, November 8th. So this is before the Republican primary debate. Uh, yes. That said, there's still you know, some dynamics and things that we can talk about even after the whatever this performance is that uh, hasn't happened yet as we tape this here. But I just have to wonder. I, I guess they all have to kind of go through this just in case, I guess, what, Trump is convicted or, I mean, what what is the, what, what's the thinking here? Well, the thinking is, is that the Republican Party thought it was setting up a legitimate primary debate process to coincide with a, a you know, the, the, the electoral primary and, and the front runner just decided not to play along. And it hasn't hurt him one bit. And so what's going on is they're trying to run this process they set up, but just without the main event, you know, the, the, um, there's five candidates tonight. I think there's really only two serious people left, Haley and DeSantis. 
Haley's been kind of the, the flavor of the month here in terms of the, the polling in some ways, although you look at it still, DeSantis is still in, you know, firmly in second place in most. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at it now. Nationally, DeSantis, so Trump's at 58 nationally. DeSantis is at 15. Haley's at nine. In Iowa, Trump's at 47. DeSantis is at 17. Haley's at 14. She has caught up with him and passed him in New Hampshire. Trump, 47. Haley, 15. DeSantis, 11. So she's caught up in one state, but not really nationally and uh, and certainly not in Iowa. So I guess for Haley, this is her chance to, you know, try to do something on on Iowa. I just, you know, they're fighting over, you know, 40 percent of the vote. And if Trump's getting 60, it is an academic exercise. And, uh, you know, Haley's been arguing she's more electable than DeSantis. I don't know if that's true or not. No, no one's really attacked Nikki Haley, and she hasn't had $20 million of negative ads run against her the way DeSantis has. Uh, but I do think it's true that if DeSantis were to go away tomorrow, well, a huge chunk of his support's going to go to Trump. Mm-hmm. They're not, you know, those people aren't necessarily pining for Nikki Haley next. They'd go back to Trump. Some of those are Trump people who just like DeSantis better. And so, you know, Haley has become the de facto leader of the never Trump wing of the Republican Party. I have a hard time believing that that wing can win the nomination away from Trump or, you know, anyone else really that that comes from the sort of the Trump era. Just not where the party is right now. Sadly, uh, that has its limits uh, in general elections. And I suspect, you know, obviously I'm going over to the studio in a minute for to watch and do coverage, but. My suspicion is this will be part of Haley's pitch. You know, I will beat Joe Biden by 15 points. Donald Trump may or may not win at all. But will that be persuasive to a Republican voter who's looking at national polls showing Donald Trump leading Joe Biden or Joe Biden circling the drain on mental acuity or any other question? I think that argument is losing altitude because of the national polling showing Trump at a minimum competitive and in many cases winning. They were told for months, well, you got to vote for someone else because Trump can't win. Well, they're looking at polls now saying not only can Trump win, but it might not even be that close. So we'll see. We'll see how much talk about that uh, we get tonight. I guess we can we can rehash it next week on the pod. The other big news uh, for these participants in the debate stage tonight, um, Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, uh, gave her official endorsement to Ron DeSantis. Uh, Iowa being an important state early on one Scott I think you've said that he has to win if he's going to be viable you know the next day uh, she's a popular governor in her home state do you think that makes a difference or are those kind of endorsements not not quite as weighty well I think it certainly was a, a boost to DeSantis and I you know I got asked about this a few months ago when this was rumored so I think it's significant but not definitive and we'll see you know if we get any we'll see if we get any uh movement in the polls. I'm dubious. Again, I, I think Republicans are, are kind of analyzing this very simply. I think a lot of Republicans have concluded that Joe Biden is going to lose, mm-hmm. that he can't win, that people have just moved on from Joe Biden. And so when they look at the field, they may like the rest of these candidates, but they'll say, well, what we really want is vindication. We want vindication on all the things they did to Trump. And the only way to get that vindication is for him to go and beat Joe Biden fair and square next November. And I just, I don't know how you defeat that. The, the, the argument for months was Trump can't win. Well, now he's winning. How do you defeat? I don't know. I don't know if you're on that stage, how you defeat that. Other than if you're Haley, I guess you say, well, I'll win by more. 
<laughs> but, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Jared. That's super persuasive, you know. Yeah. I, again, it's just it, it. Also, you mentioned Haley being kind of the flavor of the month. I don't. They haven't even. None of them have really even done anything much to to you know boost that and and be the you know sort of change the narrative. Uh, so again, it's just it feels like it felt like the first one. Like I think you just called it an academic exercise. We sort of said that about the second one. I don't know. It, you know, I, Trump has sat them out, and they have been less than entertaining. Viewership hasn't been great, so I just I don't know what what's left in the tank for any of these people. I, I think tonight, by the way, this is probably the last stand for Tim Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got to do something tonight. You know, I, he's his team has been previewing a more aggressive um, attitude tonight, which I actually don't think is really Tim Scott's disposition. I don't think it's his, I just don't think that's who he is. And so when you try to be something you're not, I don't usually think it works out. But again, by the time you listen to this podcast, this debate will have already happened. So you can, you can judge for yourself whether that, whether that strategy came true. But, but I think, I think this, this, this for Tim Scott is the last maybe big opportunity to try to try to make a splash here. I'm guessing this is in front of a live audience again. You know, I don't know. It's in Miami. Uh, I would assume so. They all have been, which I don't it's like, by the way, because I think no, I, hate I think it, I think it sets up sort of this concept that this is a coliseum. I and I think in both debates, the moderators have tried to pit these Republicans against each other and get them to fight each other and get them to smack around each other on petty stuff for the amusement of a crowd. Right. And I think it cheapens it. And that's not really a debate. It's a coliseum. And those are two different things that I don't think it serves the voters very well at all. No, so I are we going to get a, a stupid question tonight about aliens oh. and desert islands? DeSantis' oh. boots, maybe? <laughs> bet bet on it. There'll be a stupid – somebody will ask a stupid question tonight. Great. Bet on. Now, I do, have, I do have a lot of confidence in Hugh Hewitt. I think he's a serious man who understands Republican thinking and is a true conservative. And I have no doubt he'll ask a very, very serious policy question, maybe on foreign policy of somebody. And they better be ready for him. Mm-hmm. He is not—he is not a superficial guy. He's a—he's a—he's a thinker and a conservative, and I'm glad they're using him. Before I let you go, Scott and, and friends, uh, anything you've seen, read, or heard you want to share with us? Mm, you guys start. I gotta think of something. I'm just—I've been oh, on a lot of flights. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, I'll go. I'll give a shout out to um, my brother who was published in the. Uh, Wall Street Journal oh, for the first yes. time yes. uh, cool. yesterday, actually, uh, in the Wall Street Journal uh, opinion piece, something he's he's wanted for a long time now. The uh, title of the piece is COVID Becomes an Excuse for Crime. Uh, you've heard it used uh, across the country to sort of explain r- rising crime rates and, and, you know, homicides and shootings across our cities. And so um, Josh does a, a good job of sort of dispelling that myth. And, and uh, again, I think... Public safety was a central part of this gubernatorial campaign, and certainly for the folks in Louisville who still care about real solutions, COVID is the excuses has sort of run out here. And so uh, Josh sort of breaks that down and talks about what the real solutions are and uh, how COVID has become this uh, this you know excuse essentially for for the progressives uh, who are destroying our cities. Uh, tr- truly, and you know these these DAs and these police chiefs who have just given up on on really prosecuting and locking up criminals. So, shout out to Josh for finally getting in the Wall Street Journal. Very cool for him. Congratulations, awesome. exciting. What you got, Kevin? Nothing. 
I, I have <laughs> not read anything interesting outside of work for a week. So Thanksgiving inflatables are going up in my in my neighborhood. Can I just oh, my turkey, this my be inflatable watch? <laughs> my turkey's up. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's what I saw. A, uh, are we going to do a Thanksgiving draft this year? I think we should, actually. I think we should do a Thanksgiving yeah. draft. I think we got to get Sean back in here. I think we got to get Kaylee back in here. I think we got to do a Thanksgiving draft. And mm-hmm. one lucky listener can participate in the thank you in the Thanksgiving draft. <laughs> I will I will say that I have one quick scene. I'm going to keep it real brief. My one of my children loves the 5 Nights at Freddy's game, the franchise. Got the characters, they're like it's like Chuck E Cheese, but it's 5 Nights at Freddy's and it's a game and they made a movie. It's been the number one movie in America, I guess, for a couple weeks. I mean, anyway, I took him to see it. He loved it. He loves seeing all the characters that he loves up on the big screen. I don't get it myself. <laughs> but anyway, if, if this is just truly a scene read or heard, I seen a movie. And that's about all I have to say about it. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of streaming content just on, on the on the on flights and things like that. But have you guys seen the, the show called Upload on Amazon Prime? I saw a couple episodes. No. no. It's what is it? It's just it. It's 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 hard. It's it's comedy, science fiction. Uh, basically, that when you die, you can before you die, if if they get to you soon enough, they and, and they can you can upload your entire conscious, and then you live in this digital world for a fee. And it's uh, for a fee. It's a it's a business. It's 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 interesting. It's, it's capitalism just, it's, it's kind of meets fun. the afterlife. Exactly. Kind of. Fun. Is it like dystopian, like Black Mirror? Mirror ish? No, no, it's 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 just more fun. Yeah. Although there are, I I I really appreciate most of the Black Mirror. I, I did my, I did finally finish watching the entire um, latest slate of Black Mirror and liked about half of them. Not not quite yeah. as great as the, the the first year was a classic year and everything. Since there's every year after that, it's been like maybe one or two that have been really stood out. But uh, yeah. what was but, your favorite? What was your favorite Black Mirror episode of this most recent season? Oh, I'm trying to remember here. Uh, well, the, the, the one that I thought created a lot of suspense and sort of just gut wrenching moments was the, the dudes that were in space. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, one. They had like the, no. uh, the avatars on yes. earth yeah. and yes. the one, I mean, good yeah. grief. Which yeah. frankly is a little bit like this upload because it is, it is, mm-hmm. you're, you're possessing yeah. this different thing. Exactly. Right. So no, that was probably the one I was thinking of. I was trying to, I thought you were going to ask me like my favorite of all time. And there's been quite a few, um, frankly, the very first one was the most, Oh, was, just, with oh. the British prime minister. Yes. yes. Oh my oh, God. Lord, what a way that. to start a show. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Man. I couldn't believe what I was watching. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. All right. Well, Scott, we'll be watching for you on, on CNN and uh, yeah. looking forward to the, uh, the aftermath there, and we'll uh, begin. To, I guess, guys, uh, start thinking about whatever structure we're going to do for this Thanksgiving thing. We'll go yeah, we need to. Yeah, we need to look at the calendar because uh, we may want to. We may want to. Yeah, we don't have that much time. Thanksgiving coming up just in a couple of weeks, so mm-hmm. we'll get it. We'll get it done. For Kevin and Jared and Scott, I'm Joe. Have a great week. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm-hmm.